Welcome to the Untold Tales Audio Anthologies. Written by Don Muchao and narrated by Melissa Del Toro Schaffner. Behold, the Son of Man. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Genesis 2-7 You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Luke 3-22 Every night I wake up screaming because someone has removed my eyes from their sockets. But I am not blind, and it is not a dream. I can see more than others can see, behind the facade we call reality. Eric Brenfield advanced the form of his palm top to the next patient. Paranoid schizophrenic, machine fantasies, transient memory loss, cutter. A little unusual for a male, but not unexplainable. The oldest and most famous case of machine fantasies was that of James Matthews, a tea broker and part-time spy, committed to Bethlehem Psychiatric Hospital in 1797. There was often an element of truth behind the paranoia. Matthews imagined pursuers did in fact exist, but the elaborate mechanisms of pneumatic chemistry, which they supposedly used to attack him with ray guns, did not. Matthews' story was the sort of self-consistent hyperreality from which normal people found it hard to escape. An exhausted-looking man in dirty white pajamas raised a plaintive blank stare as he entered the room. Saul Hendricks, age 47, self-admitted June 12, 2032. Recurrent nightmares involving the removal of sensory organs and the replacement of them with robotic parts. A side note indicated the patient's teeth were in bad condition, quite common for schizophrenics, and that he had high blood pressure. Brenfield closed the form and looked up at Saul. Good morning, he said. How are we feeling today? Hendrix said nothing, picking at an invisible speck on the bed. My name is Eric Brenfield. I'm a clinical psych... I want a mechanical engineer, demanded Hendrix. A psychiatrist with the Center for Multidisciplinary Medical Studies. I'll get your mechanical engineer, but not until we've talked. Eric walked in and sat down on the railing at the foot of the bed. Suppose you tell me why you're here. Hendrix stared at Brenfield's medical recorder for a long, long time. E-paper, he said, almost inaudibly. Low power consumption magnetic display. 5G mobile rotating key encryption. Wideband medical RFI shielding. 200 megahertz to 5 gigs. Clinonet hybrid deductive reasoning unit. Brenfield smiled wryly. Very good, Mr. Hendrix. Do you work in medical electronics? Hendrix stared ahead and picked at another invisible speck on the sheet. I'd like to help you get back to normal, Brenfield said at length. If you want that, you have to help me. Open up. Tell me what's going on. Spouting tech isn't a good start. Hendrix sighed and glanced up. You don't believe me either, he said. I thought you would be different. Brenfield took advantage of the rare moment of eye contact. He leaned forward and looked Hendrix dead in the eye. Try me. Hendrix's last memory was of a medical encounter. Six months ago, he had been in a hospital, didn't know what kind 
or why. When he awoke, a bandage on his abdomen covered a long purple scar that ran from his sternum to his navel. His skin felt prickly, and he remembered fighting back nausea, as though his insides weren't comfortable with their situation. The one thing he was certain of was that it was not a psychiatric hospital. He'd screamed for a doctor, and pandemonium ensued for the next 20 minutes while staff tried to locate the specialist he had seen. Half an hour later, none had been found. A hospitalist had entered the room, checked his notes, and ordered an increase in his pain meds. Then he had left. The meds clouded his head, and he couldn't quite make out what he had been afraid of. But he knew it was something, and it had been real. He tried to relax. After what seemed like an eternity, it got quiet again. So he disconnected himself from the drip lines and monitors, put on a bathrobe, and slipped down the hallway. The last thing he recalled was a painful and hurried descent down the stairwell, and alarms going off on the floor above. Feeling better today? Brenfield asked, as the door opened and he slipped into Hendrick's room. He thought Saul seemed a little calmer this time. A little. I slept most of the night. Nightmares? Not this time. Good. You okay to talk more about them? Sure. It was a diffident answer, but at least Saul wasn't picking at the sheets. It was progress. The secure facility glistened in the afternoon sunlight. It was four o'clock, the temperature near 99 degrees Fahrenheit. This particular building was a giant Faraday cage, copper-shielded blast walls, and temperature-controlled double windows with auditory interference piped in. A closed-air circulation system prevented chemical or biological attacks, but there had to be a waste gas exchanger. R1156XB focused on the stack. At the far northeast side was a hot, high-tensile concrete bunker shielding with 12-inch porous vent blades that let air and water vapor in without admitting toxic proteins larger than a virus. They worked slowly with such large volumes of air, and as a result, it often got quite stale inside. As a result, about every two hours, a small number of people walked outside and milled about. They usually clustered in groups, talking with people they knew. A few of them, the ones who spent time on highly compartmentalized Umbra projects, resisted the urge to socialize and just stood around. And R1156XB knew that this was their weakness. Brenfield smiled as he entered Hendrick's room. In his hands were three soft green juggling balls. Brought you something, he said, sitting down on the foot of the bed. I can't juggle worth a damn. Thought maybe you could teach me. Hendricks looked up with a disbelieving expression. What makes you think that? Brenfield sighed. I admit it, he said. It gauges mental acuity, neuromuscular coordination, and it tells me if a patient is cooperative and willing to talk. But some enjoy it. You should give it a try. Talking or enjoying myself? Brenfield smiled. He watched closely and took notes as Hendricks picked up the balls and balanced them in his hands. Saul seemed focused as he tossed one up into the air and caught it with the other hand, just as he tossed the one he was holding there up into the air. Pretty good, said Brenfield. How in the name of God could you tell? My sister juggles, said Brenfield. She says it's like playing catch with yourself. Like you, she focuses on the space in front of her eyes, not her hands. You could get very good at it if you tried. 
Hendrick's eyebrows nodded into a sour expression as he handed the balls back to Brenfield. I'm done now, he said. You take them. In fact, we're done for the day. Goodbye, Dr. Brenfield. Thank you for trying, but you're not getting anything out of me today. R1156XB remembered his first outfitting at the PH Green Center for Natural Robotics, a mad scramble of light and a jumble of sounds, thousands of tiny pulses from nowhere in particular, a gray, nondescript blob hovering into view. Hours later, the blob coalesced into what he now knew was a face which had several distinct expressions. One of them was especially pleasing. The one he learned was called a smile. His outfitter was a nice woman named Karen. She doted on him. She had given him arms, then hands, then touch sensors so he could catch and hold things without breaking them. She had given him eyes and ears and a voice. The voice was discordant and bleeding, but he learned to change the sound until it was pleasing, like hers, but deeper. <laughs> but it was a voice. To pass the time, he tried imitating others, and she giggled sometimes whenever he tried to do something new and creative. The giggle produced the same feeling inside as the smile, so he tried to do new things more often. What the hell? Brenfield answered his earbud in mid-step, nearly upsetting a gurney just behind him. But why? The voice on the other end was quite exercised, Eric sputtered. Well, was there any evidence? Short gut syndrome? Pseudo-obstruction? Was he ever on TPN? He started pacing, distracted. Are you sure? Why is the paperwork missing? What about... Oh, that's right. Then never mind. See what you can do to find out, though. I'll dig a bit also. I'm headed there right now. Seconds later, he burst into Hendrick's room. Hendrix was leaning over a plate of scrambled eggs, devouring them. He looked up as Brenfield entered. How's breakfast? Brenfield demanded curtly. Excellent. The eggs are a bit underdone. I'm surprised you can stand the sulfur. I've never had a problem with it before. I'm surprised to hear that, said Brenfield, since you've never had a small intestine before. Hendrix sat up. A look of surprise spread over his face. Finish your eggs, said Brenfield. Then you and I are going to have a long talk. Brenfield pulled every record of Saul Hendrix he could get his hands on. Bethesda, Mayo, M.D. Anderson, and half a dozen regionals responded immediately. Absolutely nothing. A few hours later, he became increasingly doubtful that Saul Hendrix ever existed. None of the 35 medical institutions on his list had ever admitted such a patient, and there weren't that many intestinal transplants done in a year. The University of Arizona Medical Center's transplant surgery program had suggested checking donor databases and post-surgical records and triangulating the recipient. But it was possible that Hendrix had the surgery done overseas or at a military hospital. Four days later, still nothing. Brenfield sat at his desk, scratching his head. It just didn't make sense. Nobody named Saul Hendrix had ever had this kind of abdominal surgery, which just didn't jive with the guy sitting in Hendrix's room. He decided to pay his patient another impromptu visit. Hi, Saul, said Dr. Brenfield. May I come in? Hendrix nodded. I want to apologize for my behavior the last two weeks. No need to. Your behavior is just fine. Nevertheless, I want to try something a little different. Tell me what you want to accomplish while you're at this hospital. 
I told you, I want to see a mechanical engineer. Why? Because... Brenfield stopped himself. Why? He asked more calmly. I want a complete physical scan, head to toe. That's why I'm here, Saul. I'm a doctor. You're a psychiatrist, said Hendricks. There's nothing wrong with my mind. Okay. So there's nothing wrong with your mind, except you think you're a robot. I am a robot, said Hendricks. Now we're getting somewhere, thought Brenfield. Okay. If you're a robot, then why don't you have any robot parts? I told you, they've all been replaced. Brenfield cleared his throat. If you don't mind, he said. That seems quite convenient. You don't believe me. I do find it hard to believe, said Brenfield. Maybe you can help convince me. You got a call from some guy doc at the VA. He said you had a patient with a new small intestine. My scars are less than nine months old, so why don't any hospitals have records of it? Wait a minute, said Brenfield. How do you know about that? Hendricks rolled his eyes toward the door. Door was open, you talk loud. That, and in one of my dreams, I heard someone named Davitz talking. Figured it had to be the VA. I was recovering from the surgery and she was saying, It's all new in there. Why does she know, but no hospitals know? Who were those doctors? Could be anyone. I'm checking that out. But look, Saul, I know a lot of bad stuff happened to you in the past. I want to help you get past it and get on with a normal human life. That's what we need to focus on, right? He walked around to Hendrix's side and patted him on the shoulder. Hendrix winced. Did I hurt you? Hendrix smiled. New shoulder, he said. I'm still getting used to it. R1156XB knew from the beginning he would do anything to please Karen. Then, for about two weeks in late spring, she didn't come. Perched on a mount and unable to move since he was only a torso at the time, he worried constantly that she would never come back. Occasionally, workers came and went, but they weren't Karen. Once, he tried to talk to a stranger, and it didn't go well. Not everyone in the lab was aware of her interest in machine cognitive development, and his wails and grindings frightened intruders. He took to whistling to himself to fend off boredom, sleeping at odd intervals when he had had nothing else to do, and occasionally browsing the internet in his mind. Gradually, words and thoughts and ideas came more easily. When Davitz finally returned, she found him whistling both the melody and harmony parts of Jesu, Joy of Man's Desiring. She squeaked, and her voice was as beautiful as daylight. You clever little devil. I thought I put you to sleep, but I guess not. So, what have you been up to while I'm away? I've been memorizing the cantatas of Johann Sebastian Bach, R1156XB said, not knowing she would collapse on the floor. For a long while, until she woke up, he was sad. To think of the being that had given voice to the inner workings of his soul. Of all things, he did not want to hurt the woman who had made it possible. Against his own better judgment, Brenfield ordered a full medical scan of the patient who identified himself as Saul Hendricks. He didn't know who to believe. The tests didn't turn up a thing. Head to toe, every cell of Saul's body registered as human, yet the man insisted he was a robot. He didn't dare to let on to anyone at the center that he was taking Hendrix seriously. And yet, 
Routine lab tests did indicate the patient was on an intensive cyclosporin regimen. And the shoulder? It was in fact a graft from a man who had died in a motorcycle accident two years ago in Minneapolis. As he walked into the room, Brenfield asked Saul, Who gave you the cyclosporin? Dr. Davitz did. Uh-huh. Brenfield made a handful of notes, then shut off his recorder. There are a lot of Dr. Davitzes and Dr. Davitz. Where does this one work? I don't know. Does Dr. Davitz work in Minneapolis? I don't know. I want to remember, but I can't. When did you start on cyclosporine? Years. Maybe. I don't know. Why don't you know? I can't remember. Renfield sat down on the foot of Hendrick's bed. You were right about the shoulder, he said. It isn't yours. None of me is mine. I thought I told you that. Brenfield leaned forward and loomed in on Hendrick's face with a level of hostility that surprised both of them. Yeah, he said. I heard you. And what if it's true, Saul? What then? Is it some kind of existential crisis? Do you not know who you are if you can't figure out which bit of DNA is really yours? He leaned back. Jesus, look at us. It's 2032. Our genome isn't what it used to be. There isn't a person here who wasn't born busted. My son has artificial pancreas. His teacher has a robotic eye. Our neighbor is a double amputee track and field athlete. What does it fucking matter, Saul? Saul edged his way back in the bed and looked more tired than ever. What, Dr. Brenfield, defines us as human? That night, Saul slept well, but Brenfield didn't. He kept thinking about what Hendricks had said. When Karen awoke, the only thing that told RX-1156XB he had not done a bad thing was the smile on her face. Apart from that, the hint of a tear at the corner of her eye was ambiguous, though not a likely response to fear. She grabbed his face and cradled his jaw in her hands, beaming. I'm so proud of you. Then she acted as if she had suddenly remembered something, which she had. Hang on a second, okay? I have something for you, but it's outside. Hold on. Karen ducked outside the door and came back in seconds later with a heavy duffel bag. Inside were mechanical parts and an assortment of wires and other bits of circuitry, sensors and strain gauges, and so on. I got you some legs, she said excitedly. I'm going to teach you to walk. One day, two men arrived at Karen's office carrying briefcases and wearing suits. She was knee-deep in what amounted to a hip replacement for R1156XB, as she had recently discovered traits of human gait that reduced stress on both the joints and feet. Parts were everywhere, and the place was a mess. I'll get this, said Karen. No problem, said R1156XB. I'll be quiet. Good. She walked to the front of the lab and opened the door. As the men entered, R1156XB was marveling at the new toes on his left foot, wiggling them gleefully as tiny pistons clicked and whirred. Good morning, said Karen, pleasantly but formally. She'd seen DOD types before, and she could tell them from a mile off. Get to the point. Who are you? We can help you with funding, Dr. Davitz, said the taller of the two. My name is Colin Golden. I run the Exoskeletal Robotics Research Program at the Naval War College, 
I was hoping we could talk. There was another person in my dream, said Hendricks. A man. He programmed me after I left the university. I don't think he liked me. He tried to make me kill people. I didn't want to, so they came after me. That's why I ran. They were sitting this time at a break room table near the front desk of the secure wing. Saul was drinking a Coke, which seemed like a very human thing to do, and he was enjoying it. Brenfield didn't exactly trust him, but the man's behavior was consistent with the story he was telling. In Saul's mind, he was a robot. And right now, more than anything, Brenfield wanted the full story, if for no other reason than to document the history of a paranoid multiple transplant patient. Were you a soldier? Is that where you lost your arm? Hendricks frowned. I never had an arm before that. Not a human arm, anyway. I remember Dr. Davitz said she'd get me something better, as the sensors wore out and my hands went numb a lot. It felt so much better to finally get artificial muscles, but they too wore out. The truth is, unless the whole system is organic, it's not self-repairing. That's the beauty of the human body. It fixes itself. Even if you cut it? Brenfield said dryly. Hendricks looked down at the long longitudinal cuts on his arms, which went from his wrists all the way to the kink of his elbow. You still think I did this to myself? It's consistent with your diagnosis. Hendricks smiled. You think I'm paranoid schizophrenic. That's good. It's easier than believing you're a robot. Brenfield crossed his arms. Suppose you were, he said. Every part of you is human. How are you going to prove it? You can get a DNA sample from my brain, said Saul. I'll sign the forms. But I think you won't find anything conclusive. I don't know where they got it. Lab-based, grown on a template, or maybe they just put a big blob of stem cells in a petri dish. How should I know? You're a robot, remember? You know everything. Karen Davitz shook Colin's hand perfunctorily. DARPA usually took over projects like hers, grabbed everything in the lab, and left people like her with a big check and an inch-thick shut-the-fuck-up contract. Okay, Mr. Golden, she said. Suppose I go along with your testosterone-fueled mech warrior fantasy. What do I get out of it, besides the money and a really big headache? Even if I do have the best tech in the world, I won't be able to publish. My research is my life. We can cooperate. Golden said. You won't be able to unlearn what you pick up. It can inspire you to do things outside my immediate objective. Apply them to other industries. Start a new one if you like. So, what's so special about R1156XB? It's built from the ground up, said Colin. We've done a lot of work on mission-specific AI, including swarm communication, target acquisition, object and voice recognition, kill choice. Not a good start, Mr. Golden, Karen said, but you may continue. He changed his tone a bit. What hasn't been on our radar so far, he said, is the pathomimetic element. R1156XB is very good at acquiring behaviors and mimicking emotions. That could be useful. I could tell it was different when I saw it. It engages in play. It expresses curiosity and responds to tone of voice. He looked up at the robot. Don't you, R1156XB? R1156XB's eye slits narrowed as it turned its head toward Golden. My name, 
he growled, is Saul. Davids made small talk and promised the men she'd call them back later. Colin left the number and shook her hand fervently like he'd thought he'd closed the sale. As soon as they were gone, Davids told Saul to follow her to her car. Had it been anywhere besides the university, someone would have noticed the robot walking behind the smaller human woman. Karen told Saul to duck his head as he got in and encouraged him to stay quiet when she thought about where to go next. To be honest, Golden's offer weighed heavily on her mind. But she couldn't escape feeling that Saul was dependent on her and that Golden and Daniel would turn him into a ruthless killing machine. I've got some friends, she said to Saul. I'm going to take you to them and see if I can get you to blend in a little better. She fumbled with the keys and tried several times to crank the vehicle after it had already turned over. That will be difficult, said Saul. I am a robot, like this car. The only difference is that the car is not self-aware. He looked out the window. I understand, David said. As she hit the gas, the car's tires squealed in reverse before it stopped itself from colliding with another vehicle. But we have to get you somewhere safe. Saul awoke from another dream. He could smell antiseptic and feel the cold tingling burn of neural growth substrate as it made contact with raw circuitry. He remembered his vision blacking out and an experience not unlike his creation happening all over again. He didn't know where or when he was. Around him were unfamiliar sounds and all he could see was a blob of gray floating in the space before him, suffused in bright light. Karen? I'm here, Saul. We got the eyes and the ears from a brain-dead patient in Tulsa, Karen was explaining to someone. I called in a few favors and didn't reveal who or where the recipient was. These are all black market, but thankfully no one who really needs an organ cares much about that. I had them helicoptered in about a week ago. You've been learning to use them, Saul. How do you feel? Okay, I guess my mouth feels numb. That's because it's a real mouth. It took some real doing to set you up with an artificial blood supply to get oxygen and glucose to the organs. It's a lot easier to add robotic parts to humans than it is to do the reverse. But we'll make it, Saul. It's not perfect, but it should get you by. We'll work on you some more as soon as you can take it. In another year, maybe, you'll look even more human. Why are you doing this? Saul asked. Davids reached out and lightly caressed one of Saul's new ears. Partly to hide you from those Pentagon creeps? And partly... She paused, realizing her throat was catching. And partly... She continued. Because I know in my heart that you are a man. Saul smiled. He wondered if it was a real smile or just a robot smile. It hurt. Had to be real. She smiled back. Thank you, Dr. Davitz. Don't thank me yet. The more human you get, the more you will understand pain. I already understand quite a bit, Paul said peacefully. When you were gone, I wondered where you were for two weeks. Davids patted his cheek, and Saul felt it a little bit. I promise you, I'll never leave you, she said. I may step away, but I won't leave. Do you understand? She drew her hand away and let it drop slowly back to her side. Yes. Good. Now be a good boy and get some rest. How Golden's people found him was a mystery, and what happened after that was a blur. Multiple operations, machinery replaced by lab-grown or donated human parts. Saul looked more human as the days went by. 
He thought often and longingly about Karen, and as the days went by and he endured endless medical procedures, he was also subjected to intense physical and mental training with perhaps a dozen other humanoid robots, but he saw none of the light in their eyes. At odd intervals, he'd be shuttled off to a military hospital, under heavy guard, and taken in for organ replacements. He found himself in programs that demanded human behavior, learning how they worked and acted, and what they ate and talked about. But it did not feel human. Oddly, it was the same social knowledge that Saul used to escape the Virginia training facility. During a piss break he didn't need, he gave his captors the slip, feigned two escapes, donned a uniform jacket and sunglasses, and walked out the front door. And for a while, he was alone. Almost ten years to the day of his capture, Karen met him at Starbucks in Portland, Oregon. My God, Saul, I can't believe it's you. Look at you. I missed you, he said. She squeezed his hands. They felt warm and rough, like they were supposed to. I missed you too, Saul. It's good to see you. I can't stay. They're still after me. They were training me to infiltrate some military command center. I think they wanted me to start a war. And I get the sense that they'll keep hunting me until they find me. Saul noticed for the first time that she had aged. He felt a pang somewhere inside that was neither happy nor sad. Just impossible to describe. There's got to be a way, Saul. There has to. They just can't know it's you. Saul knew he was committing a sort of suicide by turning himself in. And yet, as he walked up the steps of the massive Center for Multidisciplinary Medical Studies, he knew it was something he had to do. Passing the Turing test was supposed to be the last challenge, the only thing standing between him and complete immersion in humanity. But there was a test above it, beyond it. It wasn't about appearing to be human. For a machine to be thought of as human, it had to be human, until proven otherwise. And somehow, it was liberating to think that the question of his humanity would soon be decided once and for all. As he ascended the steps, he passed a handful of faces he recognized from a study of the staff. Three endocrinologists, one specializing in animal allergies, two biomechanics residents, almost what he needed, psychiatrists. He took the last few steps, a few at a time, enjoying the bounce in his new legs. He breathed fresh air through new lungs and felt the blood course through his human veins. Pumping his fists, he raced up to the top of the steps and looked back. Behind him, the warm April sky glowed with the first signs of oncoming summer. For a time, yes, he'd been in captivity, under the watchful eye of authorities, but their curiosity would die down, provided that he responded well to the antipsychotics. Karen had warned him about little details like this, and for that, he loved her all the more dearly. As he entered the front doors and took the elevator up to the psychiatric wing, Saul took a deep breath. Hello, he said at the reception desk. My name is Saul Hendricks. I am a robot assassin, and people from the government are trying to kill me. Thank you for listening. We love our listeners, fans, and patrons here at Untold Tales, and we would love to hear from you. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, letting us know what your favorite story has been in our three seasons of storytelling so far. 
We'd love to continue shaping our podcast with stories that you'd like to hear. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.